Amen. Thanks, band. Great job. Well, church, as you're having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles, if you've got one, and open up to John's Gospel, <laughs> Gospel of John. Um, and we are going to be starting a new series this morning. And so we're going to be talking about uh, a life surrendered. We're going to be talking about, we're going to be looking for the next three weeks at three different characters in the Old and in the, in the New Testament about what does it mean to surrender our lives, not just, um, not just make commitments but really surrender our lives to that to what he has for us. And so, but before we do that, I want to give us a quick update. It was neat to get to see all these kiddos when they're leaving to their different classrooms, student ministry, fifth grade class. We had all the kinder and up in here, and we've got like what seems like a hundred more babies back there in the back room, which is kind of crazy. Um, but we updated y'all uh, in a members meeting about a month ago, wasn't it, Josh? About uh, just space. And as we continue to grow here, and we add more families, and we add new folks and more kids in this space. Uh, we're praying about what does that mean for us here, particularly in this physical space. We know that the building isn't a church, but God's people is a church. And so we are actively looking to see what else is out there for us as God continues to bring more people and continue to add more people and add more kids and what we're running into in this building in particular is we're running out of room in a lot of our classrooms in the back. And uh, we're slowly running out of room even in this, in this space here. And so at Current Trends, that's going to continue to happen by God's grace. We're just, we're, we're humbled by that and we're excited about that. And so a quick update that we, that we mentioned in the members meeting is there was a piece of land, a church plot. Uh, that is still available in the woodlands. We put in like a super insulting offer on that. Uh, and they pretty much uh, said no. So that one was dead in the water. Just quick update. Um, you may... <laughs> so yeah, that's a quick story. That one's done. So um, they said, absolutely not. Uh, see you later. Don't ever talk to us again. Uh, another update is if you, you notice there's the, the building literally stones throw away the crossing church right up the road. Uh, they, if you notice, they have a for sale sign in the front on Research Forest. It's literally, you could throw a rock and hit it if you've got a really good arm. And so it's a great location. Um, we've been talking to their pastor there for, gosh, coming up on eight, nine months now about that building. We knew it was coming up for sale. They're moving up the road. They've got maybe 10 acres on Research next to Legacy Prep that they're going to be building on. And so we... They were having appraisals, quick update there. We did put in another just really insulting offer for them based on uh, our church size, the budget that we've got, and the money that we've saved up for a building. Uh, we came in at like half of what we think they'll probably ask for. It. Woodlands real estate, especially commercial, developed, is very, very expensive. Um, and so uh, the good news, bad news is we put in a low offer, which we thought would just be laughed at, but they haven't said no yet, but they haven't said yes. So um, we don't know if there's any other offers on that building, and so we'll keep you guys updated uh, with regard to that building. If we were to get into neg negotiations with the crossing, the building right up the road, um, it, we would need to raise some extra funds to make, to make the gap to get us into a building like that. It's a fantastic location. Uh, the sanctuary holds about 300 max. There's a little balcony. There's a children's building. It does need a little bit of work, but overall it's been really well taken care of. So uh, just wanted to update y'all with regard to that. So we've, we've, we have put in an offer. It hasn't been accepted and they haven't said no, and we hope to be able to continue talking to them. The third option is uh, lease space. And so 
uh, as we potentially may one day outgrow this space at current numbers, uh, are there other available spaces that would house us a little bit more effectively, specifically with regard to all the kids, and even in this room where we're able to put uh, more chairs in as the Lord grows our church? And so we're hoping, we're working with a commercial real estate guy, and he's going to be presenting us with hopefully five or six other options. Lease spaces are also very expensive too. And so, um, but we're just, we're wanting to just see what's out there and examine uh, the things that are currently uh, up for lease that would allow for us to park and be able to put all the people that we have in them. Usually those require some build outs on the inside because they're usually just sort of blank boxes or they've been different, different things. So that's an update on space, facilities, buildings. And I've had a number of people ask, especially since that sign went out on the crossing about that building. And so we wanted to let you know that we are in talks with them and uh, among other things. So any more questions about that, come grab me after service. So we're starting our new series, A Surrendered Life, John 21. We're gonna be looking at the life of Peter. Um, and I'm gonna read John 21, starting in verse one. And we're gonna read through verse 18 and dive into Peter's story here in the Gospel of John. John 21, starting in verse 1. After Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, I'm going, we're going with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but at night they caught nothing. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out, in, laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Verse 18, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Now these opening scenes in this, in this chapter, this final concluding chapter in John's gospel are, are, is this idyllic scene and it's supposed to take us back. It's supposed to uh, reverse us back in time to when Jesus first calls his disciples for the very first time. It's supposed to remind us of this very first meeting that he has with these same men on a fishing boat out to sea. But what's strikingly different here, what we need to remember, what we need to realize as we approach John chapter 21, is the dizzying events that have transpired up until this point. Right? The Passover has concluded. The beating of Jesus, his mockery, his crucifixion, the cross, all these things had passed. And now the disciples are seemingly alone. And they're wondering, what's going to happen next? Where do we go from here? What do we do? And so the question facing these men, these first disciples, these early disciples is, now what? What does God want to do with us? What do we do? Jesus is gone. We're alone. So what does God want to do with a group of people like this who have essentially fled They've denied even knowing Jesus. They've run away. They've abandoned Jesus in his moment of greatest need, and they've gone back fishing, right? At one point, they said, Jesus, I'll never leave you. My allegiance is to you. I'm for you. I'll always stand by your side, and now they're gone, and they've just gone back fishing. They feel alone. They made some decisions that led them far away from even where Jesus said he was going to be. When he returned. So what does God want to do with us when we, like these disciples, make those type of decisions? I said I was going to do it. I was going to commit. I was going to follow through. I was going to do better this time. But I just fell away. And I've run away. And I've gone about it a different way. Even in our greatest failures, when our commitments have fallen short, when you don't live up to all the things that you said you were going to do, God, I'll do better next time. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it this time. Where do we go from here? That's a question that I think Peter and the disciples were asking themselves too. Now, our question through this series is, does God want just our commitments? Pastors, we love, we love that word. Commit. We need committed people. We need committed volunteers. We need committed church members. We need committing, commit, commit, commit. Commitment is not bad, but does Jesus just want our commitments? Because if you're anything like me, I've made so many commitments to him and I just haven't followed through. I haven't measured up. I've just fallen flat on my face. I've failed. I've sinned against the Lord. In fact, I've gone the complete opposite direction of what my initial commitment to him really was. So where does that leave us? Does God just want a group of people that just make commitments? No, I don't think so. I think what the Bible calls us to, what we even see in this story is, which, why we're calling it a surrendered life, is that we would surrender to the Lord. 
We wouldn't just make these commitments, but we would surrender our agenda. We would even surrender our commitments, our plans, our hopes, our dreams. And we say, Lord, what do you want from us? Where are you going to take us? Lord, you made the commitments. You never broke your promises. And you sustained me. You've saved me. Your blood has covered me. You have rescued me from myself. Your commitments hold true even when mine fail. And so Jesus, in light of that, says, so I need you to surrender all of your agendas and follow hard after me, even when your commitments fail. Come follow after me. He says, I've covered all your failings. I've taken the punishment for you. It's not your plans, but it's now me living through you, Jesus says to us. And so this morning, God gives us a picture of his incredible mercy and grace, even in the midst of our failure. And that's really good news. It's great news for me. And we see this most clearly in the life of Peter. Now, let's take a second to remember Peter. Uh, Just some cliff notes. Uh, He was a disciple of Jesus, right? Uh, He... um, Peter was the kind of guy, he was like all heart and half head. He was that kind of guy, right? He was like ready, fire, aim. That was Peter. He was always the first to open his mouth. He was like, I, I played high school football. Peter would have made a great fullback. He just, I just need a guy that just, you just fill, fill the gaps, fill the holes. Like just throw yourself in there. Just, yes, I'll go. And he just goes. We had a guy like that. He wanted to be a Navy SEAL. Whenever the football team would get in trouble, this guy um, which he would take the blame for everything and take all the punishments for like a year. It was fantastic. So we would cut up and we would, he, he, it, and he would say, I did it, sir. He, he thought it was like his training. To, so he, he, this was him. He's like, I'll, I'll do it. I, I'll take the blame. So he would constantly be running until he puked almost every day. And the coaches finally caught on like, you didn't do any of this, right? <laughs> this was Peter. He was like, I'm, I'm there. I'm in. <laughs> he didn't always think it through, Right? Sometimes that really helped him out. That's a great character trait to have at certain points in your life. Like when Jesus looks out at all of his disciples and he says, who do you say that I am? Jesus looks at all of his boys, right, that are following him. He's like, who do you guys tell people that I am? Who do you think that I am? Peter's the first one to fire off. I think you're the son of God. It's like, yep, good job, Peter. And then two seconds later, He rebukes Jesus after Jesus is like, oh, by the way, yes, you're right, and I'm going to the cross to atone for the sins of man. And Peter's like, no, 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 no. You got it all wrong here, Jesus. Let me tell you what you're going to do. And Peter says, get behind me, Satan, right? That's Peter. He gets a a lot of things right, and he gets some things wrong, right? Maybe you can relate to Peter. I can in many ways. Peter's telling Jesus how to live his life. Peter's like, I got a wonderful plan for your life if you just listen to me. I've got it all, I've got it all thought through, right? <clears throat> Peter's the kind of guy who when Jesus takes his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying, when he's about to drink the cup of wrath, to the, God's wrath poured out on Jesus, right? And he's praying in, in sweat, like blood is pouring out. Jesus is in this most intense moment, Peter's the kind of guy that goes and he just conks out asleep in the garden. And he, Jesus is like, you guys stay here. I need to pray. Will you pray? Will you be with me? And Peter's like, yeah, I got gotcha. And he just conks out. I worked with a guy like that. He, was, he could sleep anywhere. We were in youth ministry. We were taking a, 
a, tr- a trip to Colorado with a bunch of students. It was so maddening. And uh, it was like a 24-hour bus ride with like 100 high school students. And he was the youth pastor. And we were t- I was literally in the middle of telling him a story. It was like 3 in the afternoon, not when you, a normal person would go to sleep. And I look over. We're literally, we're talking to each other. And he's... I'm like, did he just fall asleep while I was talking to him? Like, yeah, he does that. And he slept the whole trip. Didn't like, didn't even look after the kids. So it was up to me. So Peter's that he just falls asleep, right? He's, he's gone. He's the same guy when the troops come to arrest him. Peter pulls out his fishing knife. He's like, I got this, guys. They've got swords and torches. And he pulls out his fishing knife. And he's like, I can handle this, Jesus. Guys, back up, right? He thinks he can handle himself. He thinks he knows the way. Right? He thinks he's got it all figured out, and he cuts a guy's ear off. Jesus has to heal the ears, that whole deal, right? Jesus like, put away your sword. So this is happening according to my Father's will. They arrest Jesus, and they take him to a courtyard, the same courtyard that they had beaten him, and they had mocked him, and Peter follows them. And he enters into this place, and he watches as uh, his nation, his family, those that he probably, some, his, his entire peer group mock and reject and deny his king. He's watching this all play out. And in that moment, his adrenaline's probably sapped. Um, he sits around a little fire, if you remember in the scriptures. And a little girl goes up to Peter and, he, and she says, hey, you know that guy getting beat up over there, don't you? You look like one of those guys that was following him around. I remember you. Peter says, no, 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 that wasn't me. And she, this little girl asks again, are you sure? You look just like that guy. Like they're sitting around this little fire. Jesus is getting mocked and beaten. And he says, nope, no, I'm, I'm, I don't know that guy. I'm just, I'm just here by the fire, right? And then a third time to prove that he really wasn't one of those holy people that walks with Jesus, that follows Jesus, that is following the way of Jesus, he starts cussing like a sailor just to kind of separate himself. No, I'm not one of those guys, right? Just to show that he's kind of tough and he's, he's not one of those holy guys, right? And at that moment when he denies Jesus the third time, the rooster crows just like Jesus said he would. And the book of Luke tells us that Jesus looks directly at Peter. Can you imagine that moment? And do you remember Peter's response through all this? After Jesus looks at him, the rooster crows, he denies knowing him three times. The text tells us that Peter ran away and he cried. He sobbed. He's racked with guilt. There is a tremendous amount of shame in Peter as we approach John 21. He's racked with guilt. He's racked with shame. He's racked with uh, God's finished with me. Jesus is done with me. I've, uh, I failed in a way I can't even explain, and there's no way I can come back from it. This is what Peter's thinking. And I think a lot of us, maybe even in this room, know what that could feel like. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've run from the Lord. Maybe you're in the midst of something where you're running from his expressed will and you just, you're racked with shame and you're racked with guilt, right? And we know Jesus doesn't want us doing the things that we keep falling into, the things we keep stumbling into. And so the question is this, 
question is this. What's God going to do with people like us? I've been there. I struggle like that all the time. What's God do with people that have betrayed him, that have turned their back on him, that have run the opposite way, that have failed him? What's God do with people like us? Well, John chapter 21 gives us a window into this. And it says, after this, Jesus revealed himself again. After what? After his death, burial, and resurrection. Right? After Peter's denial of his Lord Jesus. After all of this, after Peter shipwrecks his faith and he leaves his king, Peter makes a decision in verse 3. This is setting this up. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to them, and they said to him, his other friends, his buddies, we'll come with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So here you've got Peter, who was a fisherman all of his life, right? This is what he did. He grew up fishing. And Peter is in this moment. He's denied the Lord. He's heard rumors that Jesus is coming back. And he thinks, I'm disqualified. I'm done. God doesn't want to see me. Jesus doesn't want to see me. He looked, he looked at me as he's being beaten. I made eye contact with him. And I denied knowing him three times. And he takes a big step backwards. And he goes back to what's familiar. He says, Jesus can't use me anymore. He goes back to the place he went. He used to go. He says, I'm going fishing. And I think the shame and the failure just said, I'm, I'm pulling away. I'm gone. I'm going to retreat. I'm just going to run. He just walks away. And it's interesting here because he's not alone. It says in verse 3 that the others said, we'll go with you. So Peter's a leader. He has influence over people, right? His decision to just walk the other way and go back to his old life, thinking that he's done, influences the people that are around him. Right? The truth is that we never sin alone. We never make these decisions to say, I'm just going to turn away from what the Lord wants for me. The Lord's finished with me. When we make decisions to just walk away and say, I'm done, it affects other people because other people go with him. Right? I hear this all the time when people are contemplating something dark or they're, they're feeling like the Lord's done with them or they just need to walk away. Right? They, they say, you know, well, it's just, it's just me. It just affects me. It's never just you. We're more interconnected than we can ever imagine as the body of Christ. We're all knit together in ways that we can't fully understand this side of heaven. We have influence over our people. Our decisions affect other people. And our sin even has consequences that bear down on other people. It doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you. And this is exactly what Peter does. Peter says, I'm done and I'm just going fishing. I'm out. And the text says that night they caught nothing. I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's God's doing. I think that's actually God in love showing them and us something profound here in the scriptures. When things in your life just aren't working, sometimes Jesus moves by complicating things in your life to get your attention. Peter was a fisherman. He caught fish. It was pretty rare probably for him not to catch fish. And the Lord was doing something here on purpose. So these guys fish all night. They catch nothing. And then we read this. This is, 
This is one of the most hopeful, this is one of my favorite moments in the scriptures. When I read this, it just brings me to the brim of tears. I can't even, I, I love the way it's written. I love the way that it's the, the imagery here, right? In the midst of running, in the midst of Peter, taking his boys with him, they're going back fishing. They failed Jesus in Jesus' greatest moment of need. In the midst of broken commitments and promises, in the midst of their failing, listen to verse 4. And just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. That's beautiful. Just as day was breaking, the sun's coming up, and Jesus is standing. He was coming for them, not the other way around. Jesus came to them in the midst of their failing, in the midst of their running, in the midst of their betrayal. Jesus was there standing. He doesn't say, clean up your life and figure it out. Jesus goes to them even in the very midst of their brokenness, in the midst of their sin. And listen to what he says. Children, do you have any fish? I love this. This is a classic fishing moment. If you're a dude or maybe a, a lot of ladies fish too. My mother-in-law is a great fisherwoman. But he, he says a fisherman. He's, that's, I don't know, fisherwoman. Angler. Great angler. Um, you, ha- like, you just have to. Whenever you, like, I go fishing with my boys, no, every time someone walks by, catch any fish? It's just you kind of have to do this. So this is a great fishing moment. Jesus does the same thing, but he kind of does it sarcastically with a little bit of bite. Children. Did you catch any fish? Can you imagine if you were fishing, a grown man, a fisherman in your fishing boat, you fished your whole life, and some dude on the shore calls out, and it's, it's literally used, uh, the, the original language, it could be translated this, little boys, did you catch any fish? And you're like, who is this guy? And I love the response, no. Love that. And so he, he, he can't see the net, and the, these, these fishermen are like, who, what is going on here? Who does this guy think he is? And in verse, verse 6, don't you love it? Whenever someone learns that you haven't caught any fish, they love to give you advice on how you are to catch fish. Well, what you need, have you tried this lure? Uh, i got this new knot, right? This is this classic hunting fishing story that's unfolding right here in the Bible in front of us. And Jesus, come, Jesus, right, he's going to give him his advice. Guys, what you need to do is this. And, the, and always the guys that are receiving the advice are furious because they're not catching any fish. And you're standing there. You haven't caught a fish, and you're going to tell me how to catch a fish, right? You can just imagine the rage filling up in them as Jesus says, cast the net on this side of the boat. Then you're going to find some fish. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of, quantity of fish. And you're reading this, you're like, hey, I kind of remember this, right? I feel like I've read this before, because you have. In Luke 5, Jesus did this the very first time he met these guys, when he first called them into the ministry. He's recreating their initial calling here after their great betrayal, after their great denying, after they cut tail and run. Jesus is recreating this powerful moment when he first said, I want you guys with me. You're my guys. He's recreating this miracle. And this is a crystal clear message. 
that in place of failure, Jesus still pursues. Jesus still leans in and he calls to Peter and says, I want relationship with you. This is a clear message to all of, all of us Peters in the world, right? All of us deniers, all of us betrayers that think we're too far gone. Jesus is still saying the door is wide open. He says, I've not cast you out. Jesus says, remember when it all started? I didn't choose you based on your righteousness. I chose you because I wanted you. I wanted a relationship with you. I'll never leave you. And I love Peter's response here. In the face of failure, in the face of sin, what does Peter do in verse 7? When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment. I think it's weird. He's about to jump in, but he puts on something, and he jumps into the ocean. He doesn't run from God. He runs toward him. He swims after Jesus. He's like, I don't even want to take time to row in because I'm going right after you, Jesus. He jumps in, and when they got to the land, they saw a charcoal fire with fish laid on it, right? And Jesus says, bring some of the fish that you caught, even though he already had fish there. It's another little miracle maybe that Jesus is like already there. Maybe he had caught some fish, so he, he, could, he could give him some instruction. And Jesus looks at them in the midst of their failure, looks at Peter. He's soaking wet on the beach after he's denied his Lord. And Jesus looks at him and says, come have breakfast with me. Come have breakfast. Um, That's an amazing moment. He doesn't condemn him. He doesn't scream at him for his failings. He doesn't try to beat him up. He doesn't call him out. Yet, he'll get there. That's how Jesus treats us. He doesn't stand on the other side of the shore and scream, what are you doing out there? Get over here. He doesn't say, get out of the boat. You messed up again. I think a lot of us think that's how God deals with us in the midst of our sin. We think he's this angry guy that just wants to drop the hammer on you at any chance. Jesus is gentle and he's kind and he cooks them breakfast. When we talk about melting a rebellious heart, I think when our commitments have failed to live up to what we'd hoped, Jesus still looks at, looks at us and says, I'm still with you. Surrender your agenda, what you thought you were going back to, and follow me. And something amazing happens here. I don't want us to miss this. The text says that Jesus made a charcoal fire. Now, why does it say that? The truth is, in the, in the Bible, this is a really weird word for fire in the original language, in the Greek. Uh, you get the word fire all over the Bible. It happens all the time. But the word charcoal fire, that, that distinction, a charcoal fire, only happens twice. And it happens two times both in the Gospel of John. In this moment right here, the other time that it shows up uh, is also around Peter. And it's when Peter is warming himself around a charcoal fire next to a little girl when he says, I don't know that guy over there getting beaten and about to go to the cross. That's the only other time it's used. This word is used on purpose because Jesus is recreating the very moments that Peter says, I don't know you, I don't know you, Lord, I don't know you, Lord. 
he's redeeming his darkest moment and he's cooking him breakfast around a charcoal fire. This is incredible. This is incredible. He's taking him back. This is a path to repentance. He's having him remember. It's not that it had no consequence. He's taking him back to remember so that Peter could repent, so that he could move forward with his life in the midst of his greatest failure. So he doesn't beat us up, but he calls us to repent. He calls us to remember where we've wronged and sinned, but to lean on the grace and mercy of Jesus, even in the midst of our greatest failings. And when they finished having breakfast around this little charcoal fire, that reminded Peter of that same place when he denied his Lord, Jesus looks at him and he says, Simon, son of John. He doesn't call him Peter. Very few times does he call him Simon, son of John. And he does that when he's talking about something very important. It's like as a parent, when you call your kids by their full name, they kind of know it's like, oh, they're serious. It's not like, hey, Owen, come here. Oh, and Ryan Eppers, right? You're like, he's like, oh, so he's, he wants to get my attention. He says, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, that could be the fish. That could be the other disciples. It could, no one really quite knows. Does he, he says, do you love me, no matter what it is, he says, do you love me more than, you back to your old life, do you love me more than these other guys that are around, do you love me more than whatever it might be? Do you love me more than anyone else in this room? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus looks at him and says, feed my lambs. And he looks at him a second time. Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, he's racked with shame and guilt, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he says to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Mimicking the three denials that Peter did. And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus looks at him as he's just grieved. And he doesn't say, you're done. You blew it. You messed up. You can never come back. He looks at him in the midst and in, in his grief as he's walking him through repentance. He says, feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Jesus wants to save Peter from this past shame and guilt and have him move forward from it. He wants to see him repent and move forward in his life and what God's calling him to. And he says, there's a world out there that needs you. And it needs you on mission. It needs you sharing the good news of the forgiveness that you found in me, Peter. There's people that are hurting, that are in sin, just like you are, Peter. And you need to step out and shepherd them into green pastures. Jesus says, don't be sidetracked by your failure. It hasn't shipwrecked you. I'm not done with you yet, Peter. He says, what, what you did was terrible. He walked them through repentance, through this whole story, 
through the recreation of all these moments, reminding him of where he's come from, reminding him of his betrayals, but then calling him to feed my sheep, feed my lambs. You're, I'm not done with you yet, Peter. Jesus, I went to the cross. I took the punishment that you deserved. I've atoned for it. I opened the relationship. You don't have to wallow in shame. God is not done with you. And I've never seen this before, really, as, as I've looked at this, but I thought this was an amazing verse, verse 18, to really summarize this idea of not just having our commitment to Jesus, but a life surrender to Jesus. And it's this last verse, verse 18 here, that we're going to look at that I want us to remember as we walk through this series. And I find it to be profound. And it's where Jesus tells Peter what surrender is going to look like in his life. And it's not easy. And it's costly. Verse 18, Jesus, after walking him through repentance, looks at Peter and says, truly, truly, I say to you. That means this is really important what I'm about to say to you. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. Right? You just kind of did what you want. You went fishing whenever you want. You're like, hey, I'm just going to go do this. It's my plans. It's my agenda. It's what I want, what's best for me. I know the best, so I'm going to go do it. Jesus says, when you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He looks at Peter and tells him a very hard truth. He says, Peter, following me is going to cost you something. No longer do you just go and get to do whatever you want. A surrendered life to me, Peter, is, is the best possible life. But it's not the easiest. It's not the path of least resistance. He tells a broken Peter, I'm going to heal you. I'm going to free you. He said, but I'm going to move and live through you. I'm going to be the hand that guides you, even to places that you never thought you'd go and you never dreamed that you would have to go there. But Jesus says, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to lead through you. I'm going to grab your hand and live through you. That's a surrendered life. Not, I'm going to do better this year. I'm going to pick myself up by my bootstraps. It's, I finally surrender my agenda. I finally surrender what I think is best for me. And we say, Lord, you take me where you want me to go, and I'll go, even if you're going to take me to places that I don't necessarily even want to go, because it's for my good and it's for your glory. So Jesus looks at him and says, follow me in that way. Follow me in that way. Let's pray to church. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for John chapter 21, the story of Peter. Lord, I know I can relate to this. I know that there has been moment after moment after moment where I've failed you, where I've missed the mark, where I've denied you, where I've run the other direction from you. But thank you that you come after us and you stand on the shore as the day is breaking and you call out to me that I don't have to clean up my life, that I don't have to fix anything first, that your grace and mercy abounds even in the midst of my failings because your commitments to me have never failed, though mine have to you. 
And so, Lord, this morning, I hope that many of us here in this room, maybe for the first time in a long time, and maybe for the first time ever, would say, Lord, help me surrender my agendas. Help me surrender my plans. And Lord, live through me, even when I failed. Lord, take me to even places that I never thought that I would go for your namesake, for your glory. Because there's a world that needs the hope and the mercy and the grace of Jesus. There are too many of us trying to work our way into heaven and we simply can't get there. But thank you that you did the work for us and you invite us in as sons and daughters through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. May you live through us and may we surrender our agendas to you in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the church.